Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come on by, check things out. You might, if you're not a subscriber already, you might be getting an email from Steve today or tomorrow um, asking you to sign up. And uh, you might want to check out this very strange uh, profile of us in Vanity Fair, which I'll talk about probably in the, at a later date. Um, but I want to get straight to our guest. So I have a lot of people on this podcast who you could say are like my friends. And some of them are like really my friends. And some of them are sort of my professional friends and people I've known for a long time and, and all that kind of stuff. And then there are other people like I've actually been to their homes and had meals with and that my kids know their kid or my kid knows their kids and that kind of thing. And Ramesh Paneru is one of those kinds of friends. And so is a first-timer who's here today. Um, he, and I, I, he is a he, despite, you know, his, his girl's name, um, is uh, uh, I've known for quite a long time. He used to write frequently for National Review. Um, before that, he was counsel to the vice president. And by vice president, I mean Dick Cheney. So he was sort of like the Tom Hagen character to... Um, to Dick Cheney, um, and uh, and and I know that that's not just an Irish joke, and um, and he was also like the deputy something or other uh, attorney general of the Justice Department or something like that. Title's meaningless, and um, and he's a fancy pants lawyer who wears belts and charges lots of money here in Washington D.C. as well. It's my friend Shannon Coffin. Shannon. Yeah, the, the longer your title in government, the less important you are. That's right. And so the attorney general, you have deputy attorney general, you have assistant attorney generals, and then deputy assistant attorney generals, and that's where I fell. I see. So, so like, in, on the principle that fecal matter sluices downhill, um, the attorney general says, you know, we should probably do this. And then what form like how much work does that create for you like or do you get to pass the buck further down the, the food well, chain y- yes to to the career civil servants who you know who who run the government when when politicals aren't around um uh we worked worked very closely with them uh and so i supervised about 100 lawyers there uh-huh. uh responsible for all the constitutional litigation, civil litigation that that goes through every time you pick up the newspaper and say someone's challenging, you know, Obamacare, that went through that office. So, and yes, it definitely flowed downhill. And as far as politicals go, you basically didn't get any lower than me. I got you. Okay. <laughs> um, so, and uh, and this was all under W. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Just. Uh, 
Because challenging Obamacare would be weird. That would have been weird. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Prescient, but weird. Well, I went through that office at a different time. I gotcha. There okay. Go. So, um, uh, since you worked with all these career civil servants people, um, and this is not why you're here to talk about it, but it might provide a segue if we do this right. Uh, some would call those people, that phylum of the DC ecosystem, the deep state, um, or at least the um, administrative state or something like that. Um, um, how many of them would you say are, I mean, justice is not, of the agencies that's famously has like the deep state bureaucracy that undermines Republicans and stuff, it de kind of depends on the division of the Justice Department. Um, how, what was your experience working with, with, with the deep staters at DOJ? I worked in the civil division and um, unlike the civil rights division, which your friend Bob would, uh, yeah. would tell you, you know, was a management challenge. We had our management challenges and we, we had... When I started at the Justice Department, we had a significant management challenge of an embedded management, career management that just wanted to do its own thing and, you know, wasn't going to listen to these idiots upstairs. And of course, you're there to implement the president's policies through, um, through litigation. And that means, you know, taking positions that may be aggressive in some cases and maybe make people uncomfortable in some cases. Uh, it's not how we did it before. Um, and so when I first started the Department of Justice, we had that issue. Uh, a single retirement uh, helped us a lot in that issue, um, where a senior, you know, a senior guy who'd been around for 30 years and knew a lot mm -hmm. about the Justice Department but was somewhat resistant to listening to a 32-year-old lawyer, <laughs> um, probably for good reason. Um, uh, when he retired, you know, we were able to reorganize things. And um, what I found, generally speaking, though, I mean, that was an exception. Uh, what I found generally was very professional uh, lawyers, a lot of whom I'm still close friends with, you know, notwithstanding political differences. And lawyers who, for the most part, would uh, say, look, I don't agree with the president's position on this case, but, you know, you need my help. I'm there to help you. And we, you know, we litigated, for instance, the um, partial birth abortion ban that President Bush signed in 2004, litigated it in the district courts in three trials, and then uh, handed it off to uh, the appellate folks and the Solicitor General's office in the Supreme Court, where we ended up winning. Um, uh, but my job generally was to lose the cases in the in the district court <laughs> to allow uh, the Solicitor General to take all the glory. Um, you were like the Washington that, General. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But but I had you know I had th this was a highly controversial statute uh, that that stirred a lot of passions. You know, my management style in that case was to say, look, I'm not going to force anyone to work on this. You know, if you don't want to work on this, don't. Um, and some people opted out because they just could, didn't want to work on an abortion case, uh, in, on an abortion ban case. Um, but, I had, but I had, you know, a couple of notable lawyers who said, look, I don't agree with this, but if you need help on this issue, 
you know, and uh, I've got a lot of experience in dealing with this procedural thing that you're dealing with, and I'm happy to help. And, you know, I was very grateful for that. Those, that's a professional lawyer right there. Look, as lawyers, we, we, we often have clients we don't agree with. Um, some are paying the bill, and for the government lawyers, you know, they're, they, they change administrations all the time and have to adapt. Um, I found that for the most part, uh, highly professional lawyers who, um, you know, were willing to adapt and willing to take, you know, positions that they might not necessarily have agreed with. Okay, so I said we were going to find a segue out of this question. No, no, I got one. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a little right. roundabout. But, okay, so our friends, uh, and they are friends, Andy McCarthy, Charlie Cook, some of the other guys at National Review, uh, they say that Biden's vaccine mandate announcement um, which is not going to be an executive order, I gather. It's going to go through OSHA. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But that it's flatly unconstitutional because the federal government has no health care police power under the Constitution. That all goes to governors and whatnot. Um, if I'm paraphrasing them incorrectly, I apologize. We'll just say that argument is out there. Um, and, um, and since you brought up the partial birth abortion ban, how is it that the federal government has the power to police um that quote-unquote healthcare decision but not something like getting vaccinated i re i grant you up front it's a little tenuous i was going to get to that question later but i figured this was the way i could steer things back into the 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 osha vaccine mandate stuff well there is a question about whether the federal government has the power has uh, the constitutional power to regulate abortion um uh, it, it does so under, you know, what we call the Commerce Clause, uh, which gives the, the Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. And the question is, what's the commerce? Well, you know, everyone wants to say this is a medical decision. This is, you know, as purely private a medical decision as there is. Um, and um, there's, you know, if, if you take that at face value, you start to run into, well, is there does the federal government have any business regulating in this area? Of course, the Democrats would say, of course we do, because we want to, we want to institutionalize Roe. Right. Right. Now they might have an argument that there's another way of doing that, but, but as far as regulating commerce goes, I mean, abortion's big business, Jonah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Planned Parenthood makes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars doing 300,000 uh, abortions a year. Um, and the, 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 um, the connection between, you know, an abortion clinic and, and interstate commerce is pretty traceable. I mean, there, there, the, the limits of the federal government's power over commerce are pretty thin these days. Uh, and, yes. Right. And, and there's the case of the guy who could be regulated growing pot for his own use on his own land. Yeah, it was wheat. Commerce. It was wheat, but you want to change it to a modern context. That's fine. <laughs> um, uh, that's right. There's a case called Wickard v. Filburn, right. which basically said the guy growing wheat in his backyard for his own consumption has some impact on interstate commerce because he's not buying wheat. Um, and, and it's tenuous, to say the least. And Wickard v. Filburn, you know, essentially removed most constraints on Congress's power. Now there have been efforts to claw that back, and and the Obamacare litigation in the Supreme Court 
was one of those cases where, although Chief Justice Roberts voted to uphold uh, Obamacare, he didn't do so under the Commerce Clause. He said that, you know, a guy sitting on his couch, smoking weed, if you want, John, I mean, or, or, or eating a, a yeah, wheat, wheat toast. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, exactly. Uh, a guy sitting on his couch, you know, can't be forced to buy um, in health insurance on some theory that enough guys sitting on their couch added up, you know, somehow affects interstate commerce. The Supreme Court said, no, that that's not the case. Now, now, Chief Justice Roberts then came up with some clever and disingenuous Weird way tax of thing, yeah. saying this is a tax and therefore we could do the same thing as a tax penalty. But okay, so but let's get let's get it back to. Oh, have I wandered? Uh, slightly. It's fine. <laughs> it's, 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 it's my fault. Um, um, rather than defending the Commerce Clause uh, jurisdiction over uh, intra and interstate uh, partial birth abortion, um, just sort of just sort of top line. Do you think Biden's vaccine man mandate passes constitutional muster? And do you think it'll pass constitutional muster according to the courts, which are two different questions? Those are two different questions. Um, and some of that involves predicting what current members of the Supreme Court will do. Um, if you, so the, the problem with the mandate would be the Obamacare precedent. Uh, you know, is this, is this equivalent to the guy sitting on his couch that you ordered to um, to, uh, get, get vaccinated. Um, and as a, I mean, there, there's, there's a question of constitutionality and there's the question of just general lawfulness under, you know, sure. under the statutes involved and the like. I think if there's a vulnerability here, it's more likely to be the latter, um, th that, that the way the president is doing this probably doesn't fall within the statutes that Congress has adopted, uh, specifically the Workplace Safety OSH Act, the Occupational right. Safety and Health Act. Um, as far as the Constitution goes, you know, Andy and I had an exchange about this the other day, Andy McCarthy and I, and it was, I think, the eve of 9-11, and Andy was therefore busy with other things, so we haven't had a chance to follow up. I'm doubtful under existing law uh, that a court would find this unconstitutional because of the way the president's doing it. The president is is grabbing a hold of one particular statute and trying to cover 80 million people in the workplace. Now, the question then becomes, well, is that statute unconstitutional? There are, there are two questions there. Commerce clause, well, workplace safety, interstate commerce pretty easily tied together. So I, I have a hard time seeing um, a commerce clause challenge. But if there is one, it's like it's like the Obamacare thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, this, you know, you're you're telling someone to do something affirmative. Well, we, we but we do that. You know, what was different about Obamacare was that you were telling someone to buy something right? that to make a purchase you know, that generally was not precedented. Although I will say that in the late 1500s, Parliament did require the purchase of 
flat caps to um, to uh, get the wool production of England going. Um, so as an Irishman, you know, <laughs> the flat cap is an important part of, mm -hmm. of our, uh, culture and, and, um, so, so there is precedent, but you have to go back a fair amount and you, there, there may be issues. You, you might be able to, might you might be. be able to poke holes in that. Yeah. So <laughs> Michael Brennan Doherty's with you, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, so there, so, so commerce, uh -huh. the commerce clause argument, you know, is, is riding on the Obamacare precedent. Yeah. I think this is a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit different because, you know, the way this is being implemented is is through the workforce, and therefore it's got a stronger tie to, you know, daily work and sure. interstate commerce. But there, but, but there is another issue with the, with the Occupational Safety and Health Act, and it's something Justice Rehnquist uh, wrote about years and years ago. Under existing law, I don't think um, it has much chance, but, but with the makeup of the Supreme Court, it might. And that is the question of whether Congress can delegate this authority right. to, to um, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is a, a Department of Labor agency. Um, there's this non-delegation doctrine, which is mostly a dead letter these days, too, because all, all it requires is you have some intelligible principle mm -hmm. um, to, to guide the agency. As long as you can give the agency huge power, as long as there's some principle that guides the agency. Well, the, the principle here is pretty wide open. It's, you know, the, the, for a normal OSH standard, it's... Um, whether whether the standard is reasonable, reasonably necessary and a, and or appropriate for workplace health or safety. Well, that's basically telling the Department of Labor do whatever you want, right? Um, uh, Does it matter that Biden's stated rationale is to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, so. The way that the, the so the way that the president is doing this is he's not putting out an order at all. He's telling his secretary of labor, have OSHA implement a regulation and have him do it right away. Now, normally, these regulatory processes can take years because the agency will put out a proposed rule. It'll ask for the public to comment on it. And um the the public often has months or longer to comment, and then the agency has to sift through thousands of comments and respond to the major ones. So it's a it's a tedious process, uh, and one of the reasons I didn't want to be an agency general counsel uh, because that's what they do. Um, so what what the president has done here is said, do it right away. Right. Skip over all that process. And that's a pro that's a real problem because the statute at issue sets a standard, and that standard is that there has to be a grave danger involved, and that this rule is needed to protect against that danger. Well, your question, you know, you have natural immunity, you have one hundred and six, you have a, what? What did the president say? One in one hundred and sixty thousand right. um, chance of of getting 
uh, COVID of, of getting being the, hospitalized, of being hospitalized. That's right. right of, of being hospitalized if you're inoculated. Well, where's the grave danger, right? right? And it's also a danger that, um, it's also a danger that, you know, everyone can control against, right? I mean, if you get, if you get the vaccine yourself, you're not under that threat. So, um, so protecting the vaccinated from the unvaccinated seems like a pretty thin read. It might also be a thin read generally as to whether it's reasonably necessary. I mean, do we really need that protection? Now, you know, you and I are on the same page on the vaccine, right? To get the vaccine. Right. We both have it and we're happy to get it. Um, I like being magnetic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I like people knowing where I am. So, uh, so but the, but the, you know, the point here is that the, the, the way the president is, is trying to do this raises statutory problems that are really, you know, Congress putting limits on how the president and his agencies can act. So in a sense, it's informed by constitutional separation of powers. Um, but it's, but it's probably more like if this is going to get struck down, it's probably going to get struck down by a court saying you just you just can't do it without giving the public a chance um, to comment. Because look at the things you're not considering. You know, what what do you do with work at home? Maybe they're going to address that. I don't know. What do you do with work at home? What do you do with natural immunities? I mean, I, I read something this morning that, you know, some major school system. Uh, uh, is or actually major hospital system uh, in Pennsylvania is saying we're not going to require our people who have had COVID um, to get the vaccine at least for a year. Um, and if hospitals are making that decision, you know, surely they're doing so based on the science. Okay, so right, let's get, go bigger picture on this for a second. So we have an eviction moratorium coming out of the CDC. We have a mask mandate in schools coming out of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education. And then we have, in the it's still in the works, a vaccine mandate coming out of OSHA. Now, what at least two or three of these things have in common is that the administration had said they did not have the power to do it right, they like like they explicitly said that they couldn't do the eviction moratorium, and then they did it anyway and kicked the can to the courts. Um, I'm not sure if they ever said in advance that they couldn't do a mask mandate the way they're trying to do it with the schools, but they might have. Um, and they did say it, that that it was at the very least not appropriate or not the role of the federal government to do a vaccine mandate as as recently as like late July. So. When they reverse course, sort of like Obama with the DACA stuff, um, and then basically do, you know, a, you know, just basically tell all the bureaucrats, sort of like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, I want a hard target search through all the federal regulations. You find us a pretextual, you know, post hoc rationale to do this thing that we said we couldn't do before. Why on God's earth does that not raise constitutional issues? I mean, it seems to me like I'm, I, and I'm pretty sure you're on the same place as I am, but maybe not because it would break your food bowl, that we, we leave it 
we leave too much, too many of the questions about what the Constitution says and demands to the Supreme Court. I get they have a role of being the final, having a final say on some of that stuff, but they do not have sole say. And um, it used to be that Congress could vote on the Constitution, question the constitutionality of bill, and if they found that it was unconstitutional, they just said, well, that can't go, we can't proceed. Now we've seen presidents just say, eh, I'm not sure if it works, but we'll leave it, we'll let the court figure it out. If the president of the United States, who's a sworn constitutional officer, says he doesn't have the power to do something and then he reverses course for political reasons, shouldn't why can't that be taken under, I don't know, judicial notice as sort of the fact that this was done in bad faith or, or I don't know, you, people have these phrases, latches or whatever. I mean, like, it seems to me that if you, if, you, if, you, if you say you don't think you have the power to do it, you believe you don't have the power to do it according to the Constitution, and then you do it anyway— the presumption of bad faith seems pretty reasonable to me. Well, look, I, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, Obama did the same exact thing on DACA, right? Um, in Biden's case, I think the administration's defense is he's just not that bright, so you don't have to take him at his word, <laughs> right? Um, but, uh, and, and that's a, Pretty good defense. Uh, <laughs> he, he was the chairman of the judiciary committee. Yeah, no, I get that. That doesn't, that doesn't, <laughs> um, those are, those two not things are not, yeah. that's right. That doesn't <laughs> control anything. Um, but I, I mean, you, you raise, look, you, the, the question of, of why is, well, you know, why is, why are they doing it this way? Right. I mean, kind of illustrates the bigger point that I think Andy's getting at, which is, well, of course, the president can't do this as a general matter, right? I mean, the president can't tomorrow issue an order that says everyone has to get vaccinated. It's just that's the sort of thing that states have the power to do because states have general police power. Now, the, the Commerce Clause has been transformed into a, almost general police power. So there there aren't that many limits on okay, what, but Let's back up on that for just two seconds. Um because this is part of the, the debate about this stuff that kind of bothers me. Um, there's a difference. There's a distinction between saying the federal government doesn't have the power to do something and saying the president doesn't have the power to do something. Right. right? Cause like if con that's right. If Congress passed a federal law, this is sort of what I was trying to get at with the partial birth abortion thing. If Congress passed a law, straight up law that said the president shall get everybody vaccinated or whatever, you know, figure out the right language. Is that, is that unconstitutional or not? Well, uh, I think probably, probably not. Yeah. Um, I, well, let me, let me back up the, 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 uh, the question of whether Congress has this power, um, and what limits are on that power um, are really only bounded by uh, the power over commerce, which is which is enormous. Mm. Um, and then you know there are other limits that Congress has put in place, and there's certainly, you know, there's certainly like the Americans with Disability Act or Rehab Act, which you know which might allow sick people to opt out. And there are you know legitimate religious objections, which are generally protected by statute in this case. Um, but, but the president's, the, 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 if, if Congress delegates to the president, the power to act, um, w 
there there are just very few limitations on this um, under under the Commerce Clause, and you know you could come up with a just a post hoc justification for requiring everyone to be vaccinated, right? You, you know. It's it's keeping people out of work. It's it's depressing manufacturing. It's doing all these things, right? Right. I mean, 1796, Congress passed an act relative to quarantine. Right. George Washington was president, right. and just said the federal the president shall uh, help states in any way he sees fit impose quarantines to fight yellow fever. Right. I don't see I don't see a major constitutional difference between a vaccine and a quarantine. Both are infringements on personal space, privacy, the uh, various, you know, the right to move, you know, I mean, like they are both impositions. Um, and so I, I, what I'm getting at is if Congress, if, if people keep saying the federal government has no role in this, I'm not sure the founding fathers agreed with that. And I'm certainly not sure that like, like the American people believe that whether they should or not is a different question when it comes to the role of the federal If this if COVID-19 weren't killing old and overweight people and instead were killing healthy young kids the way the first flu did, you know, like kids five and under were, it was basically a death sentence to get it. The country's tolerance for a lot of the stuff that we've turned into big issues would go out the window in a heartbeat. And I, I have a hard time believing the Supreme Court would say, whoa, 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 cool your jets. We have to look into whether or not you can mandate vaccines for everybody. Right. And you start with the proposition that states could do this, right? Right. Uh, uh, and, and the reason for that, or at least the, the precedent for that, is a 1905 Supreme Court decision dealing with smallpox. Jacobson. Of, or Jacobson, right. I think it's called, uh, out of Massachusetts, right? It was about weed also. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> really on the cutting edge in 1905. <laughs> so... You know, Jacobson basically brushed aside any, you know, individual liberties arguments and just said, well, we're not going to get into the business of second guessing the state or localities on what they think is best for the public health. Right. Um, there have been look, there have been lots of li personal liberties developments since then. Sure. Sure. Right. Um, you know, the 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 whole uh, I mean, lots, <laughs> lots of law that has gone in all sorts of directions about the right to define one's place in the yeah, universe, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whether you agree with it or not, it's, it's, you know, it's statements of supposed law. Um, but, uh, but right now, Jacobson's never been overruled. And, you know, the Supreme Court didn't seem all that interested in this issue when it came up through Indiana a few weeks ago and the court denied um, emergency relief um, without an opinion. So, um, so the states could do this. So you know the the liberty objections. Look, there are you know, obviously there's there's liberty concerns when someone's trying to force a foreign substance into your body, right? I I get that, um, but are they are they serious enough to overcome you know a, a state mandate? No, they're not under existing law. So so it's really not a question of uh, at the federal level. It's you know it's not a question of whether whether my personal liberty interests overcome um the state's power it's does the state have the power and and uh, I, I think i said no earlier when i you know when i wasn't listening to your question <laughs> um <laughs> and uh and you know i think the, the congress probably does have the power to do this under the commerce clause simply because 
the, the state of the law under the Commerce Clause is not entirely boundless, but, you know, pretty, pretty uh, strongly favors a robust exercise of federal power when there is a tie, you know, a, a hypothetical tie to uh, to interstate commerce. And, of course, this has affected interstate commerce. You could argue that the government shutdowns have affected interstate commerce more. Um, but, of course, you know, having this many people sick or hospitalized or is affecting, you know, everyday, everyday uh, movement of, of products across state lines. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess I should just be clear about where I'm coming from on this. I think that the president of the United States probably has, I'm not sure he should, but this is where we are, uh, but he probably has as a, practical matter, the constitutional ability. I think the federal government clearly has the ability. Yeah, no, so you're, right? you're, right. you're conflating the two right. questions right. again, right. right? So the federal government clearly has the ability to do it. If, if, if the full weight of Congress is behind it and the president, and it's written right, and the president acts on it with the authority of Congress behind him, the, the circumstances would be so exigent that there's no way the Supreme Court would get in the way and there's no way public opinion would get in the way. And so the president could do it. And, and frankly, I, it's not obvious to me that, that even before all the Commerce Clause jurisprudence, that the president couldn't get away with doing something like this if the circumstances felt like they demanded it. If Congress enacts a law that says everyone should be vaccinated and the president should take care of it, that this gets, you know, done, um, yeah, but you know what? What's the difference there? Well, Cong you know, I agree. Congress is five hundred and thirty-five elected members of Congress have taken ownership of this, right? Right, which they're, you know, hiding under tables. You know, they're screaming that the president should do this. Well, you know, you have the authority to 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 enact something. So why don't you? You know, why don't you take the initiative? Right. They don't want to because they don't want political ownership of this. So that brings me so. That's a constant theme here is that Congress is afraid to do its job. And that brings me to this sort of my nuanced position on this. I think the federal government has the power to do it. I don't think the way Biden is doing it is kosher. And, um, um, and that you know, or at least I'm 95% sure, um, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, I can still see my reflection in the mirror. It's great. Um, uh, there's a lot of freedom from that. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, uh, but, um, you know that what they're going to argue in the way that the, this, th they're already starting to spin it this way. Look, it's not a vaccine mandate. It's a testing mandate that you're exempt from if you get vaccinated. And I think that is a perfectly legitimate defense on the merits but the president of the United States didn't go before the American people and announce a testing mandate. He w announced a vaccine mandate. And what infuriates me about this whole mess is, is that to me, it is just a further sign of the dysfunction of how the three branches work or don't work and how Biden, for all his talk about being president of all of America, this was his turn to, to lean into making the pandemic stuff a culture war thing. He was like, we've lost patience with the unvaccinated. Um, we're going to ride roughshod over these governors, which to me is at the very minimum an unconstitutional emotion, right? I mean, that is a, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sentiment, right? I mean, yeah. like to say that the president, of course. Has, right? So, and it is all to sort of own, sort of own the cons, right? It's, 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 it's and 
the the tragedy of it is that we got 1,500 people a day dying. Biden could have done this the responsible way. Congress could have done this the responsible way. No one wants to be responsible. And so it leaves me in the lurch saying, hey, look, there are legitimate constitutional questions here, but I actually think the government could get people vaccinated. But what Biden has done is instead turn this, turn the heat up even more on the, this is a outrageous, tyrannical, fascist takeover, blah, 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 blah thing, where he should have figured out a way to make it the opposite of that. It illustrates, look, it illustrates the massive power of, of, you know, the fourth branch of government, the, the, the federal agencies, right? Um, and so, so, you know, the way he's chosen to do this plays on lots of concerns about overregulation, about whether agencies should, you know, should be able to act the way they do. And look, the, the Supreme Court had lots of tr- problems with how CDC was dealing with rent moratoriums, Right. Um, what, what the heck does that have to do with anything, right? With, with your mandate to protect the public health. And, you know, you could say the same about parts of what the president is doing, even as to the workplace, right? The president's saying, you know, OSHA, OSHA will be saying, um, that you not only have to, you know, uh, require everyone to get vaccinated, but you got to give time, paid time off to people who could run to CVS at the end of their workday and get this done in five minutes, you got to give them the day off. What's well, you know, it's, it imposes massive costs on employers. Not not all big employers. A hundred employees is decent size, but it's not huge. And and across the board, it's going to impose huge costs. So you know, the way he's doing this is feeding into all of our legitimate concerns about an out of control regulatory state. And you know. Whatever you say about Donald Trump, one of the things that he did at the beginning of his administration was say, I'm going to rein this in um, and was successful in a lot of respects, at least for the time, you know, during his presidency. Um, and um, so so, you know, the, the, the but the but the sort of when you when you think about this, you know, using OSHA to do this. Is the president trying to solve a broad societal problem with a workplace rule? Right. So there's just, you know, a disconnect. It's exactly what, you know, it's exactly what you say happened when the president, when President Trump tried to build a wall and found some, you know, Defense Act provision that allowed him to reprogram money. And is this really about defense bases? Right. Right. of course it wasn't, but, you know, but those statutes are pretty open-ended and um, give the president a lot of authority. So, but, so the, you know, but the, but this does, I mean, this illustrates just, just how huge and, you know, every, in our everyday lives, the federal, how huge a role the federal government plays. Easy for me to say. Yeah. I mean, um, no, but look, I mean, I, yeah, I, like the just the mere act that he's doing this through OSHA suggests that it's a it's a workaround. Of, yeah, well, he doesn't know. have the power to do it himself, right? Otherwise, right. right? So, like, like if he had the power to require mass inoculations outside of the workplace, would he do so? You know, that's an interesting question because 
the other part of what the president is doing is requiring government contractors. Um, and there's, you know, there are questions of how he does that and whether that's legal and requiring hospitals that get Medicare and Medicaid funds to require their employees, I think, to right. get vaccinated. So so what he's recognizing that the federal government has the power of the purse. Right. And you might be able you might be able to require states to do this through you know, withholding federal funds. But, but what about the individuals, right? I mean, there are welfare recipients, there are unemployment recipients who are getting federal funds. There are all sorts of recipients of federal funding at the individual level. And this president isn't even looking at that, which tells you more about his political base than it does about his authority, right? Could the president... You know, he's solving the he's solving the workplace problem, the 80 million people problem by either, you know, requiring everyone to get vaccinated or get fired. Um, what about the, the non-workplace problem? Well, he does have authority, perhaps, I mean, arguably, the, in the same way that he has authority over federal contractors and hospitals, but the power of the federal purse, you know, why not why not go? the you know the individual route and right. say want to make unemployment if, insurance if you're contingent. receiving if yeah. you're receiving food stamps uh, or their or their you know or their modern equivalent um w- w- you know you have to get vaccinated why is he not doing that because he doesn't want to because he because because he doesn't want to cause you know a mess uh, among people that might vote for him yeah um it's much easier to go after employers um uh, and so and also that, the employers like it well, that's right. It gives, I mean, a lot of employers like it. Yeah, I think, we'll hear from the ones who don't like it. I think you're going to hear from the ones that don't. You but the, don't a lot like of them it, do like it. Yeah, because give it, me cover. I right. don't, I, I, I have no choice. All right, so, uh, they're not going to like it as much if half their workforce decides I'm really dug in about this, though. Right. Right. Or that they have to set up vast new weird bureaucratic mechanisms. Look, I mean, I, I think obviously we're on the same page about the administrative state and all that. The question, and you know, it's funny, um, uh, I remember talking to Yuval a while back, uh, Yuval Levin, just for the people filling on their bingo cards. Um, and he was saying, you know, we're we're trying to get people up to speed about all of these non-delegation issues um, in Congress. And it turns out that, like, it's been so long since Congress actually understood what its authority was that it's very difficult to even explain to some People, um, you know, and part of AI's project is they want to sort of do what the federal society did for the judiciary. They want to have create a, you know, a kind of a similar project to like restore Congress to its proper function. And, and I'm entirely in favor of it and, and support it in every way I can. But at the same time, so it's that funny. We, you, you dropped his name first, you know, this, we both know this guy, Bob Driscoll used to work in the Bush at DOJ as well. And, He's a buddy at my cigar shop, and um, I was talking to him uh, yesterday, and um, and he was talking about how you know sometimes it's hard. He's teaching a class at Catholic law school, Catholic University law school, and uh, he was trying to explain to his class how much you know pragmatism sometimes factors into things for judges, and the judges, the constitutional argument may be very very strong, but you know I remember I remember Judge Bork. Back in the 90s, I remember talking to him about this, and he was saying, look, he wasn't endorsing this argument, but he was saying there's a, there's a serious constitutional argument 
out there that paper money is unconstitutional. He's like, what do you want me to do about it? Right. I mean, some questions are just sort of settled. We're not going to revisit them. Um, the Commerce Clause thing, with a brief exception in the mid-90s, where it seemed like there was being some clawback on it, is pretty settled into the warp and woof of our society. But Bob brought up this really interesting example that he uses with the students. Apparently, there was some California case where – so California had a, a hit-and-run law, and which said basically if you get into an accident, you have to stay and wait for the police to show up, right? And this guy uh, contested his conviction – or. I'm probably butchering the, the the fact pattern, but he contested his conviction saying that the hit and run law violated his first, his fifth amendment right to not to incriminate himself. <laughs> because like he's basically being asked to stick around and admit he committed a crime, you know? And, and apparently it worked its way up where like at least one court said, you know, you got a good argument here because it kind of does do that, right? Just on its face when you think about it. And then, but it apparently went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court was like, are you freaking kidding us? We're not going to overrule. We're not going to just invalidate 50 state hit and run laws because of the, the, just the chaos that would cause that kind of thing. Is there any hope of paring back some of the administrative state stuff judicially? Or is it all going to have to come oh, no, from Congress? I, no, no. I think judicially there's, there's, there are sounds being made from conservatives about for instance, non-delegation, this this rule that says as long as there's an intelligible principle, we're not going to get involved. I mean, that just means Congress can write a mostly blank check to an administrative agency and say, here's your subject matter, go figure it out, right? Um, and, you know, do we really want that? You know, a lot of people do. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have no problem with it, but there's no political accountability right. uh, when you do that. Um, there's also this doctrine that, you know, of, of deference to administrative agency decisions that when an agency takes what Congress has told them to do, and it's not entirely clear what it, what Congress has required, requiring the agency can, you know, make a policy choice and, and courts will generally defer to that. That's think, Chevron. That's right? Chevron. There you go. See, you are a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I just hang out with way too many of them. <laughs> far, far too many. And, and. Um, and there have been chinks in the armor of Chevron, uh, including in the Obamacare litigation where the court said, you know, something this big, maybe we shouldn't be, maybe we shouldn't be automatically deferring. Um, so there, you know, there's some suggestion that Chevron might get pared back. Um, and, you know, th th there's, um, I'm trying to think of what the, 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 the matter was recently there, you know, there was, there was a matter at the Supreme court and I'm just not thinking of what the, what the issue was uh, where, you know, five justices seemed ready to overturn some longstanding precedent and, uh, justice Barrett and justice Kavanaugh said, yeah, we think that's right, but we're not quite sure what should replace it. Right. So, and that's, you know, that's part of the issue with Chevron. What, what do you replace it with? Well, you know, you could replace it with courts doing what courts always did and determining what a statute meant. Well, Congress is pretty bad at writing statutes, even though they have all these legislative counsel. They, there's always something they don't think of. Um, and so, you know, it's it's often difficult to discern what Congress actually meant. Um, but uh, but the you know, the question of of um, 
of agency deference, a deference to agencies, is is I think somewhat up in the air. And you know, uh, it's it's one of those things that even the chief justice, who has seemed to go wobbly on certain issues, you know, does have concerns about. Um, so, so I think the court could, you know, carve back some of these things. I'm not sure they will completely overhaul things, but, you know, will they nibble around the edges or even, you know, at the center, um, at times? Yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, you know, as long as there's a six, three, uh, conservative or quasi conservative majority. But if it's, if it's nibbling around the edges, basically what you're saying, and I don't think you're wrong, um, is that the only way for Congress to actually do its job is for it to want to do its job, right? Yeah, which is, as you say, a, you know, a problem. I mean, they, they, <laughs> yeah, do, well. they do enact a lot of things, um, but they, they seem perfectly willing, you know, to turn things over to the president and his, you know, and his unelected bureaucracy to decide the contours of federal law. Um, and you know, that is problematic. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an issue that I deal with daily in litigation, right? You know, challenging a federal agency who just takes it too far. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you're a federal society kind of guy, right? Yes, I, I am indeed a member of the federal society, although dues paying may be a stretch. (laughs) Um, and you certainly you swim in those waters. You know a lot of those dudes. You're 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 part of all that. And um, and I, I don't mean that in any pejorative way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's good because it's not pejorative. I, I, I um, but um, so the there's a lot of chatter that if the court doesn't um. Subst- either overturn or substantially constrain Roe and Casey and all this with the in the wake of, when it gets to the Dobbs case, this Mississippi um, abortion case, um, that it could in fact shatter the conservative legal movement. That it would cause some to sort of say, "What's the point?" Others to say, "Okay, sort of the this procedural and or, this focus on 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 originalism and proceduralism." Um, is has not paid off, and um, and that you'll just sort of see a, a sort of scattering into the winds of a of, of lawyers going a bunch of different directions. Um, do you think that just as an observer of the conservative legal movement, forget your own position on this, do you think there's merit to that, or do you think um, like the conservative legal movement is a deep enough bench and a deep enough institution that? Um, it would sort of brush itself off and and stay cohesive and live to fight another day. I th- I think that there is a risk of um, uh, schisms, perhaps. Um, and and as a Catholic, uh, you don't like schisms. <laughs> no, no, we're not big fans. Um, look, you know. Not just from not just from a pro-life perspective, from a policy perspective, but from a constitutional pr- perspective, you know, Roe sort of represents the height of judicial conceit, right? Um, we'll just get a transcript here for my later confirmation hearings, <laughs> uh, which aren't going to happen. Um, and um, 
and uh, you know it it's it's not law it never has been law and despite the fact that i litigated you know one of the major cases in this space for the federal government you know i don't pay too much attention to what's said about it because you know what's an undue burden well that's you know it's really it's not a it's not a particularly objective standard it's it's pretty subjective so you know judges go out of their way to 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 say one thing or the other about about uh about abortion rights and it's and there's not a cohesive body of law so um so you know to the conservative movement roe represents is is symbolic of a much broader problem now that much broader problem is spread you know well beyond well beyond abortion um but uh but you know the, the both there's a there's you know group fundamentally dedicated to the pro-life cause um that want roe uh, overturned um but but you know the federalist society types uh, the constitutionalists are more committed to the principle that that judges shouldn't make laws right and this is you know this is i i think uh, Morning Joe the other day was talking about this as a constitutionally enumerated right. Right. No, it's not. Right. right. Um, it, there's nothing in the Constitution that that relates to abortion. Like the Constitution doesn't speak to a lot of things. Um, and you know, for the court for the last fifty years to have just kind of just hyper regulated in this space, right? You can do this, you can do that. I mean, who decides that? Not not the elected legislatures, but you know nine people in robes um and it only takes five of them so you know there's a sense that the court got way out over its skis um or off the rails depending on which you know bad uh, metaphor you want to adopt but um but yeah I, I mean i think there are a lot of people that would be you know why have we had all these fights you know about about the role of the courts about precedent, you know, and and all of these, you know, very, you know, very expensive efforts to educate the public, you know, if we just put people up there who just, you know, don't don't want to uh, don't want to take on the burden of of uh, of you know the pushback that would come from from overturning Roe, um, and the fact that these people were i mean obviously sometimes with a wink and a nod but you know like the the case for amy coney barrett the case for you know these guys was it that that they could be counted on for these even if again you can't necessarily say it outright in confirmation hearings but like um you know big part of the argument for for trump the big and i i mean this is a, I, I, it was a persuasive argument <laughs> was the court and if if Amy Coney Barrett and 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 Kavanaugh and um, Gorsuch um, can't be relied on, never mind Roberts and whatever, um, it's hard to see how the pro life movement sees the sees the court as the answer, or or it sees, either sees the court as the answer to the abortion question, or sees. Um, the GOP is the vehicle by which to do this. And you could end up, I mean, this is a point, you know, David French often makes is that 
the real danger is that you end up with sort of Pam Bondies appointed to the Supreme Court. You get people who aren't actually really good lawyers and judges. You just get serviceable partisan hacks who will follow well, Earl Warren of the of the next, right. you know in the next century, right? A a politician who who, you know, just does what's expected. Do, do, yeah, right. That's right. And, right. and you know, and we've avoided doing that. We've put on obscure judges from Denver and right. um, you know, pe people that aren't uh everyday household names until their names are dragged through the mud, of course, in in confirmation hearings. But Otherwise, you know, nobody knows anything about them, and and they've they've risen to the top of their of the legal profession, um, you know, because they're thinkers, right? And they're they're um, people who are motivated by um, ideas and ideals, and you know, the principles, right? And there's nothing, there's very few decisions, um, you know, the, the, there aren't principles that come into play in Roe. It's just pure, um, pure politics. Um, so uh, Steve Tellis is a political scientist who wrote a book about the whole never Trump against Trump, whatever phenomenon. He makes, um, he has a very interesting chapter about the conservative legal movement in his book. And he has, points out that the conservative legal movement was the most effective at getting what it wanted out of Trump while sacrificing the least. And part of the argument, and he quotes some conservative lawyers about this, part of the argument was is that as just as an institution and by vocation, lawyers are comfortable with the fact that, first of all, they have to make transactions um, um, on behalf of crappy clients. <laughs> and that... Um, you don't have to love your client and you don't have to love and you don't have to buy into everything that your client buys into. You have a narrow task to accomplish and all that. Um, um, I'm fairly persuaded by that. I don't think we've talked about that, but like if it seems to me, first of all, what do you make of that? And second of all, you know, when, Trump goes around saying how disappointed he is in the Supreme Court for not doing his bidding on the stolen election stuff. Do you worry that that kind of rhetoric lays the groundwork for, particularly if if the court doesn't doesn't rule against Roe, that there will be a groundswell people to say, okay, they have their serviceable hacks, we need our serviceable hacks, you know, our, our pliant complacent, you know, like, and because we see this, uh, what I'm getting at is that almost everywhere else in the conservative movement these days, there's this mirroring thing where conservatives are arguing, not all conservatives, but our conservatives are arguing, the left does this and they win all the time. So we need to do that so we can win. And the one place that stayed relatively immune to that is, is, is basically judicial stuff. And my concern is, is that if I mean, there are other reasons to want Roe overturned or not overturned. You know, there's all the policy debates and all that kind of stuff. But as a someone who cares about the conservative movement, it seems to me that that's the last pillar of the pre-sort of MAGA conservatism to stand intact. And if that goes, um, we got re real problems. Um, does that make sense to you? Or am I just rambling? I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> 
so the look, it's already happened. I mean, it's already happening with some people. I mean, I've had I've had plenty of friends know my connection to the judicial selection process over the last uh, two decades. Tell me they're done. Right. We're not doing I'm I'm done with the, you know, conservative, uh, you know, principled ideologue. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean someone who's driven by, uh, you know, an ideology rather than uh, the, the political outcomes. I, I want the political outcomes. Right. Um, and Vermeulism. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, but, you know, but uh there the, so there i mean that's that's already happening at least at you know some individual levels i know and there there will be a greater groundswell now as to the transactional nature they, i do remember your first question Josie. <laughs> um as to the transactional nature of the relationship well i look i i mean i'm quite certain that was the case on both sides and yeah. you know unlike um most of the transactions uh, uh president trump has been involved and in, he actually he actually held to this one, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, which you know was was a surprise to me. I mean, um, uh, I you know I always said, look, you know, this list is great. These people that are on this list is great, but you know, nothing binds him to it. And why is he going to stick with it? The the Supreme Court list that you know that he came out during the election, and and there's no reason. Which to, I think won the election for. Yeah, I think it had a big role in it and and but he did he yeah. did and he you know when he added people to it they were people uh that were of mostly of similar nature um there's always you know you're always going to miss with one or two people um and i and i can't think of anyone so i don't have to name names um but but you know for a large part both of his lists were you know were were consistent with with his promise to appoint you know, judges who would interpret the law rather than make it, who would interpret the Constitution rather than rewrite it. Um, and so, you know, he did hold to that. And look, I'm quite certain there were people in the conservative movement that, you know, latched onto him as a transactional matter. And it, they had a lot of success. Uh, I mean, you know, on, on deregulation, on judges, um, you know, on, on various things that you and I would generally agree with. Um, so, so the, there was a transactional nature, uh, to that relationship and, and it, you know, it did it, but it did result in, you know, some pretty good picks. Um, the problem is, you know, the president may not have been listening to what he was saying. Um, he was saying, I'm going to appoint judges who, you know, who have their own views on the law, right. And, and interpret the law, uh, who, who interpret the law from a principled standpoint. Well, that, you know, as, as, um, I clerked for David Sentel on the DC circuit, uh, 20, 26, 27 years ago. And, you know, there were cases where, when my judge would say, boy, I hate this. But this is how it has to be because this is what the law requires. Well, you know, that's that that's right. It's going to mean that they're not going to overturn elections unless the law supports it. Um, and, you know, they might they might enjoin a program that you were very fond of because you didn't dot all your I's and cross all your T's. Um, you know, that principle. I, I mean, you, you can't say that President Trump was a principled president, right? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, certainly a transactional president. Um, 
And, you know, as a result, there were, you know, there were things he did that may have stretched presidential powers, right? And, you know, his judges might see differently, you know, might might view that the 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 um the question of the reach of presidential powers is sort of an eternal question that's much more important than whether this wall gets built, right? Um, just to use an example, and I, that's not one that you know, it's not one that necessarily came before the court, but, but, uh, but it's so. Yeah, sure, President Trump was going to be frustrated um, with some of the decisions. Now, look, there, you know, there, there are reasons. There are reasons from with some of the decisions the court has made, you know, giving away half the state of Oklahoma in terms of criminal enforcement to to Indian tribes. Um, that sort of example where, you know, where one of his justices, uh, who I respect a great deal, you know, came up with some fairly creative uh, interpretive principles and then wanted to lecture everyone about how he was, you know, a, a, a textualist. Um uh, sorry, Justice Gorsuch. Um, but, uh, so, you know, look, these guys are human. They're, you know, they're going to miss occasionally. Um, but, um, but by and large, you know, they vector in a particular direction. Um, and, um, that means that sometimes programs that, you know, federal programs that you might like, you know, might fall by the wayside. And so, of course, Trump's going to, you know, be upset about that. But this is what he appointed. This is, this was the deal he made. Um, and, you know, that there's, <laughs> there's a cost to that in terms of uh, his political preferences. But, but this is one area where he actually had an effect on principal, yeah. principal decision making. I, I, my only point is I worry that like the court should rule on Roe the way the court should rule on Roe, regardless of its effect on the conservative legal movement. But like, let's put it this way. If Trump ran again in 2024, he would not promise to appoint justices like what, regardless of how they vote um, on, on, on Dobbs or anything like that. Or he might promise to appoint justices like Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh and those guys. But if he were given the opportunity to appoint more justices, they wouldn't be like those guys. They would be much closer to the um, Sidney Powell mold. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Look, I don't know. I mean, that's one area where he got the most support, right? I, we used to joke um, when I was working for Cheney, he was giving a stump speech in the 2006 election cycle. And, you know, it the the biggest applause line was always i appointed or the president president bush appointed justice chief justice roberts who at the time still you know was, very popular was very yeah. popular and justice Alito, who remains that and uh, i always joked that you know you could just shorten that to roberto and <laughs> and still get the applause um i mean it's it's you know the, the judiciary is is very important with the base um with the political base is that going to change? You know, is, is that going to change if the Supreme Court continues to, you know, res respect precedent over principle? Um, it could, it could, um, and it, you know, it causes it could cause an existential crisis um, among the among the conservative movement. 
Um, all right, so we've gone long, and um, I know you have to go back to. Oh, so no, no, make Nicki Minaj. Uh, we're not. We're going to avoid good, Nicki Minaj. Good, good. Um, and um, and we'll 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 carry on our our debate about George Bush's uh, Shanksville speech for another time. Um, but uh, pretty sure that'll be stale. But that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Um, uh, you. Uh, um, I should let re- listeners know that you were constantly asking me for money. Um, I am for uh, this uh, this program that or this this organization that you do a lot of good work for. It's called and my, and and just also so listeners know, my wife made me ask this question because she's a better person than I am. She uh, is, um, and she's actually the one who usually writes you the checks. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. Um, I agree on all everything you've said so far. Um, but you do a lot of work for an organization called Best Buddies, and so why don't yeah. you uh, just give two seconds on that one? Oh, I, 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 two seconds. Wow. You know um, what I mean? Yeah. No. Um, Look, I, I, 10 years ago, I started just to get in shape. I did a bike ride for this group, uh, which works with the intellectually disabled, Down syndrome, autism, um, you know, people who just need a little extra help sometimes. And they provide um, job services for adults. They provide fellowship and leadership opportunities for kids in school. Um, both disabled and non-disabled kids who come together. We have a we have a prom every year for our seniors um, in the local high schools. We've not been able to do for the last couple of years, but it's one of the more amazing events you'll ever see with these kids, you know, the, the intellectually disabled and their and their and their buddies, um, and they're treated like you know princes and princesses for a day. And we try to do that. You know, we try to do that every day. Um, and so I started, it started as a bike ride for me just to get in shape in my early forties. Um, How'd that go? Well, at, <laughs> at the time it went great. Um, 10 years later, not so much, but, um, but I, and, and I, and I started doing it, uh, you know, I decided to, to, to commit myself to do it, you know, sort of as a pro-life matter, right. I, that, that. We owe, you know, we talk so much about Down syndrome and abortion. And, and I mean, the abortion rate among Down syndrome is, is like 80 to 90 percent in the United States. And in some countries, there are barely any Down syndrome children born, which is, a, you know, a huge tragedy when you when you know these children and adults. Um, and so I, the, you know, I started to do this as a witness to life. Like we, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk this game, we need to support these people in life. Um, and so I've done, I don't know, ridden three hundred miles or something like that for them, and done a number of walks for them. And I think I've raised about three hundred grand and have chaired their local uh, walk. I think they've called me chair emeritus now. I've done it about five times. Um, and, um, um, you know, you can support them at, at bestbuddies.org. Um, and you can support our particular chapter, which is the Virginia DC chapter, um, you know, just by searching for the Virginia DC chapter of best buddies and, uh, you know, any, any support we can get is helpful. We we're, we're very grateful for it. Great. I just, I think it's important. It's and very grateful for Jess, who you know, who's very generous every year. So. Yeah, uh, she's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Shannon Coffin, uh, thanks so much for coming on The Remnant. Hope to have you back. And I'm, I'm sure I'll see you away from a microphone very soon. Great. Thank you. Okay, so uh, Shannon has uh, left the studio. 
and um, uh, and uh, been meaning to have him on for a while. We will get into um, maybe we'll have him back and have if he if he'll agree to tell stories out of school about working for Dick Cheney, um, and um, you know, and what it was like to work for a Sith Lord. Uh, that would be great. And um, other than that, come on by uh, thedispatch.com. Check us out. Uh, lots of exciting stuff coming down the pike. And beyond that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.